Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, this is What's Your Beef and I'm Jane Cudahy. Stephen Moore is one of those people who's managed to seamlessly, on the surface at least, completely swap not only industries but careers. As one of our nation's most capped rugby union players, he's graced football fields across the world, representing Australia 129 times, including 24 tests as captain. After hanging up the boots, Stephen entered the corporate arena, spending three and a half years in senior positions with the North Australian Pastoral Company, or NAPCO, and played a big role in putting together the Australian Beef Sustainability framework. But he's recently taken up a position as a principal in the client division of the Queensland Treasury Corporation. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. I have to say I'm a, I'm a little bit nervy about this because while rugby is one of my great loves, um, I get I get nervy on the technical stuff. So I <laughs> we'll see how we go, I hope. <laughs> you are Irish by sort of heritage, I guess, but I didn't realise you were born in Saudi Arabia. So how did how did that come about? Yeah, I've got a, a, it's a bit of a long story, I suppose. So mum and dad, who are both Irish, as you said, were working in the Middle East in uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and, you know, back then the, the Irish economy was in a pretty bad recession and there was real, really good incentives for people to go and work in the Middle East. So there was a lot of expats out there working and mum and dad were, were two of those out there working. So uh, I was born in Saudi Arabia in uh, 1983. So went back to Ireland when I was three uh, for another couple of years and then we came out to, to Australia. So we, we were living in Galway on the west coast of Ireland. And do you remember that? Do you remember those transitions? Because Saudi Arabia is very different to Ireland and then you, when you came to Australia, Mount Morgan, this tiny little town in central Queensland, is nothing, nothing like <laughs> Ireland. So do you remember those transitions? I, I don't really remember being in Ireland at all. Uh, when I see the photos, I think I, probably a little bit of it comes back, but I certainly remember arriving in Mount Morgan. Uh, <laughs> I'd imagine I think mum and, and dad probably remember it more, but there, there was four four of us under four, so they would have had their hands full arriving in, in Mount Morgan in the mid-'80s. What took them to Mount Morgan? Dad just bought a medical practice or, or the only medical practice in Mount Morgan on the main street there. And I'm not sure how he chose Mount Morgan. I think he he may have had a dartboard or something like that and just (laughs) threw it at the the map of Australia. This this sounds like one of those close your eyes and put your finger on a map kind of scenarios. Yeah, that's right. And I think that there was a bit of that, but there was a a medical practice available and and Dad bought that and and over we came. So, look, Mount Morgan was a wonderful place to, to grow up and we also spent a little bit of time in Rockhampton before moving to Brisbane, but... It was an awesome place to, to grow up. I remember as, as a young fella, the, the swimming pool was across the road. The the rugby club, which is where I started playing rugby, was was at the end of the street. Uh, you know, we used to go down and play around in the Dee River, which I'm not sure if that's a good idea, having um, <laughs> you know the amount of uh, mining activity that's been going on over the years there. But uh, it was a great place to grow up, and we got very fond memories of our time there. Awesome. And I guess, you know, rugby really sort of became a huge part of your life. But I guess that wasn't your initial career. You wanted to study medicine or become a doctor. 
Yeah, that's right. When I left school, I had no intentions of, of ever playing rugby professionally. I, I went and started playing, uh, you know, with my mates, I guess, at university uh, whilst I was studying a Bachelor of Science, uh, which I ultimately wanted to go on and, and do medicine with. So, yeah, started playing Colts there under 19s and uh, we had a, quite a good team there and there was about half a dozen of us that got contracts with the, the Reds uh, while we were in, in the Colts team and uh, from there, I, I suppose that was the first time I, I ever thought that rugby might be something I might take further and, and do full time, I guess, and, and that materialised pretty quickly. And within 12 months, I was I was sort of training full time and also doing my study part time, which I completed over about five or six years. So, but from then on, the travel came into it, and I started going all over the place. And uh, I guess that was when I realised, you know, this is this is a great opportunity for me to, to achieve my, my dream and, and that's what I did for the next 15 years. That's amazing. And I, I guess I just want to ask about your parents' reaction because obviously they, you know, work hard, have taken some big risks to sort of um, to change the lifestyle of your family And but, uh, but rugby is such a massive part of Irish heritage too. So what was their reaction when you've gone from studying science with, with dreams of becoming a doctor and now you're playing rugby but obviously very well? Yeah, look, I think mum always secretly went for Ireland even when I was playing for Australia. So uh, yeah, at least when I'm retired now, she doesn't have to, to hide that anymore. That's so funny. My husband, it's actually quite funny because obviously, he, well, he's Australian but with strong Irish heritage and it is like this massive internal debate for him every time. And it, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Yeah, it is. And when I was young, I guess, when we arrived in Australia, I would have identified myself as being Irish. And mum's brothers used to always send the VHS videos across to us with the, you know, back then it was, I think, the Four Nations or or even the Three Nations back then, you know, to to watch and we definitely went for Ireland but as you grow up in central Queensland you watch Australian sport and cricket was a big love of mine as a kid so that's when I started to I suppose you know develop that Australian identity and that Australian spirit and from then on you know very much saw myself as Australian I'll still always be very proud of my Irish heritage we've got a, a huge amount of family back there that you know, unfortunately over the years haven't seen as often as I'd like but uh, very much a proud Australian, and I was, you know, obviously r- really proud to have played for the Wallabies once, let alone, you know, for a number of years. So, uh, you know, now now I'm a spectator, and I enjoy watching watching the Wallabies play, and you know, very much a proud Australian. <laughs> no doubt, and I guess you know, and um, we've got a lot to cover, I guess, in this half an hour. But with your rugby career. I guess you never sort of – do you think about what happens after rugby when you're in the thick of it? Because, you know, ultimately it's one of those careers that does have a shelf life. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you're first starting off, there's people that will tell you, you know, you need to make sure you prepare for life after rugby and that that's the reality. But when you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to think of anything other than what you're doing. Uh, it, it's an all-consuming opportunity, career, uh, even though it doesn't go for – forever you need to give it all you've got while you while you get the chance and and I think that's that that becomes a bit problematic as you get towards the end because a lot of people probably think it is going to go on forever and, and there is a time comes when you can't do it anymore and you, and you need to find something else um, and I used to always say to to my teammates you need to find something to retire to not to retire from you know so I think if you have that mindset that that's not a bad way to think and and 
as you get towards that second half of your career and and who knows when that might be you need to try and find people outside of rugby that you can connect with that might give you an opportunity whether it's doing study a bit of work experience even doing a trade uh, there's a there's a bunch of stuff you can do to prepare yourself and there's plenty of good people out there that will give you an opportunity but you have to be ready to take it when it comes and I think I was certainly very lucky to have some great people around me uh, as I was approaching retirement to give me advice and and ultimately to give me an opportunity at, at NAPCO, I guess, which is, you know, I often say to people, NAPCO was my first real job apart from working at McDonald's in Bowen Hills and the news agent at Central Station. So that was my, uh, my resume was pretty short, actually, when yeah. I applied for the job. Well, we'll come so, to that. I do, I, I've got some big questions about that particular trans, um, transition. But how did you know when your time was up? How did you know that, right, we've got to call it? Oh, look, I had a year left on my contract, so I actually retired a year early. Uh, I, I just I remember I was in Newcastle, we were training with the Wallabies, and I woke up one morning and we had a big training day ahead of us, there a lot of physical contact and that sort of stuff, and I was really starting to resent the training, uh, and I felt like I couldn't give give everything to the team in training, and, the, and that was always my big mantra was you, you need to – train how you want to play which which required a lot of physicality a lot of endurance you know a lot of kilometers and and when I couldn't do that anymore I couldn't look people in the eye and say well this is what I want you to do or this is what we need to do so that for me that was the, that was the moment where I said that's it I've got to walk away and I've got to finish and I went and saw Michael Checker and told him and he was very understanding and uh, that was that was it so you know some people say you know, they don't see it coming, others say they do, but I definitely I felt that, you know, deep inside me that it was the right time to finish and, and try and finish while I still had something to offer without, uh, you know, trying to trying to get pushed out the door, I suppose. So, And look, if I reflect on my career, I was very lucky to have so many opportunities uh, to do what I did and uh, I was very grateful for that and, you know, I definitely wanted to, to finish up on, on my terms and, and you know, the other part is you're handing on to the next generation of players, you know, that, that will come through and hopefully represent the, the country for the years to come. Michael Hooker took over from you with as captain, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. So right. what did you say to him in that, you know, that final match? Shake all the hands, you're in the change room. Radio, Michael, it's your turn now. Yeah, look, we had a long relationship before that. I played a lot with Hoops through our careers, both at the Brumbies and also at the Wallabies. So, and, and he'd... I did my knee in my first test as captain in 2014. So he he'd been the captain already for that whole year. So he was very used to to that role already, and he didn't need too much guidance. You know, <laughs> one thing I was very lucky to have, uh, and I guess every leader in every area is lucky to have good people around them. If they, if someone's successful, I think it's because the strength of the team as opposed to the any one individual. And I think that's something we really try to drive hard. It's it's about having a really good leadership group, people who can contribute in different ways, people who see things from different angles. And it's that richness of input that creates good teams. And, you know, through that period where we went to the World Cup final, I had a very much had a, a group of people, any one of us could have been the captain, uh, who contributed in in all different sorts of ways around the group, and and that's that's how teams are successful. Okay, well, so now we're going to go to to the transition to to Napco. 
as you say, it wasn't terribly much of a resume um, with the newsagent at Central Station and the rest of it. So what, what, were, what, were you, what were your transferable skills when you're sitting in the job interview and trying to spin, spin a new job out of it? What shone through? Well, I think firstly, when you come out of a career in professional sport uh, over a long period of time, no one expects you to have a heap of technical skills. So, you know, what I often say to, to, to retired players is don't expect you need to come out and say, well, I'm an accountant or a lawyer or, a, you know, whatever it might be. You need to really focus on your strengths and the things that you learn by being part of a team and playing at an elite level. And, and for me, that's the things like leadership, how, how good teams function, what communication looks like, honesty, integrity, all those kind of things. And, and I guess as you spend more time in an organisation, you look at ways in which you can insert yourself into different scenarios and provide that, that skill set, I suppose. And, and the content is all about listening. You know, you know, I didn't have a background in in the cattle industry. I was sort of having grown up in central Queensland, I had a pretty good understanding of the type of people in the industry and, and how they how they worked. Uh, so I guess that was a bonus. But I very much just sat down and listened as much as I could. And uh, that, that's the only way to learn something is to immerse yourself in it, whatever industry it might be. So I tried to do that. I didn't pretend to know what I didn't know at the start. Uh, you know, I just tried to learn as much. But then when I, I felt like I could make a contribution and make a difference or have an impact on something, I, I tried to do that. And, and, I, and I suppose that's all you can do when you've done something for so long. Like for 15 years, all I'd done was be around sporting teams, travelled all over the world in hotels. And it, it's, a, it's a very closed environment. And uh, when you transition out of that, it does take a while to, to pick something else up, no matter what it is. So I don't think uh, there's, there's, there's no way you can just jump straight into something without having a transition period or going through some tough times. And you know, I'm still learning every day and I don't think that'll ever stop. Well, it's, it's a very different career. Like your first interest was science and, and medicine and, um, and corporate at NAPCO doesn't really shout either of those interests. Yeah. I think, I think after such a long time spent on the physio table, I gave away my love for, <laughs> for the medical Smelt enough sector. deep heat, that's it, I'm out. <laughs> that's right, enough broken bones and plates <laughs> in, my, in my body and, and screws and things like that. And I thought, you know what, they will do me. I've had my... Yeah. I feel like I almost have a, had a career in that already, so <laughs> time to do something else. So who did you call? Like, you know, you needed some mentors, surely, to, to uh, well, upskill. Yeah. There's a lot of knowledge, to, as you say, to get there. Um, you're a bit of a researcher anyway. So who were your mentors? Who did you call? Well, uh, there was a guy, Damien Frawley, who, who is the CEO of QIC, who was a major shareholder in NAPCO, and he was certainly a mentor of mine you know, from well before I retired. You know, we, we used to speak regularly, and he was the, also the chairman of the QRU at the time. So, you know, he would often ask, well, what are your plans for after rugby? Uh, you know, if you're ever interested, come in and have a look at what we're doing. You know, just sit with some of our team, and, and uh, you know, whether it's in infrastructure or real estate or, or you know, NAPCO was in the private equity part of the business. So uh, that's that's what happened, and I did that across a number of different areas and uh, yeah, met a few more people in, in QIC and, and then ultimately got the opportunity uh, to go to NAPCO. There was a role there working closely with the CEO at the time and uh, you know, put myself forward for that and, and got that job. So 
Uh, that, that was how it started. And as I said, everybody out there needs someone to support them and give them that opportunity. And then once you have that, it's up to you to make the most of it. Um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of good people out there willing to, to help and listen. And, and, and that's, that, that's such a good thing. But then you've got to, you've got to run with it after that. And you really did because, you know, you ended up um, various roles, but then um, a member of the Red Meat Advisory Council Group that put together the Australian Beef Sustainability Framework. What was that process like? How did you get roped into that? That was a really interesting journey and something I learned a huge amount from. Um, as I said, I, I wasn't someone bringing a deep sort of technical expertise to the table there, I guess. Uh, from from a corporate agriculture point of view, and with institutional investors being involved in in NAPCO, that the pressure around sustainability and ESG and things like that is is increasing all the time. Uh, and I think the beef sustainability framework is a, is a great vehicle for us as an industry to to talk about what we do really well. Uh, and look, there's there's always work to do about what what its best form looks like, or what it you know what it who it should pitch to, or what the audience is. But I think the industry has been extremely proactive in addressing the fact that we do a lot of good things in our industry. Nobody's out there to to damage the environment or impact animal welfare. Actually, good outcomes for the environment, good outcomes in animal welfare, good outcomes with people, workplace health and safety are all contributors to the industry doing well and over time if we continue to focus on those things it can only be a good thing for the industry and there's always a balancing act between adding layers of 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 regulation and compliance and costs to people's businesses and and i think everyone's well aware that there's never much appetite to keep adding things to to that side of things but if we can work out ways to become more efficient to, to get our message across to our customers about how well we do things, uh, then I think that can only be a positive. And, you, you know, I'm, I'm not in the industry at the moment, but I can honestly say that from what I saw, that the vast, vast majority of cattle producers in Australia are doing a world-class job of managing what they've got, being productive, efficient, looking after the environment and their animals. Uh, and, and I can honestly say I observed that everywhere I went. There's, unfortunately, there's always people that don't do the right thing and, and they should be called out. But for the, for the very, very majority, it's a, uh, it's a positive story. And we should be proud of that. And we've got a good story to tell. And I, I guess Beef Australia is a great platform to continue to tell that story. And I guess as someone who is really invested in that, process of putting that together because as you say the majority of people are doing the right thing but of course there's people who don't and sometimes don't even realize that they're they're not um but the framework itself did get some pretty mixed reactions as someone who was very close to that and and could understand um the process and what you're trying to get out of that how did how did you take some of those reactions yeah look i think sometimes uh, as an industry we're probably guilty of of being looking internally a lot and not probably external all the time. I think it's a, it's always a balancing act between getting our messaging across uh, in, in, a, in a sort of credible manner um, and then we, it coming across as a marketing tool, I suppose. So getting that balance right is really important uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a hell of a lot of investment in agriculture, not only at the moment, but it will continue to happen into the future, but uh, people who are going to invest money into agriculture do want a level of comfort around 
these ESG factors, and I think that's going to continue to happen. And and it's not a huge shift. It's just about being transparent and and really uh, providing some facts and some numbers around what we do. And the more we can do that stuff, the better it'll go because most of it is a good story and we've got good things to tell. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be uncomfortable about that, but. I think in anything like this, there's going to be debate and it's not going to suit everyone all the time. And and it, and it probably never will. You know, it's going to be hard to ever get to a point with these type of documents where where the whole industry is, is satisfied with the outcome. But it's about measuring things too, isn't it? That was part of the debate is that That's it was right. about exactly the maths or the, the, the benchmarking. That's right, and the data collection is is an ongoing, you know, it's an ongoing battle to, to get good quality data to then say, well, this is how we measure this because there's one thing to say, look, we look after our animals or we look after the environment, but if you can prove that, then that's another level of credibility to your story, and and I think we, you know, we've certainly got a way to go. It was a challenge to collect good, accurate data, and I think that's going to continue to be the case, but we shouldn't stop trying to do it. And you, I guess, as as NAPCO, as a big corporate, how much responsibility do you think some of the corporate beef companies need to take for setting an example for some of those big issues such as land management, sustainability, animal welfare, you know, when when those big companies are seen to be doing all the right things? Does that lift people around them or some of the smaller producers? It's a really interesting question because uh, I was always very conscious uh, when we were talking about things to to not be prescriptive and uh, because not everything suits everybody. And, you know, there's no doubt that a corporate like NAPCO, for example, probably does have more resources to to put into some of this stuff to try and make progress. Um, but not everybody has that, that opportunity. You know, a lot of people out there are just uh, are trying really hard to make a living out of what they're doing. And, you know, we were always very conscious to not try and prescribe what we think the industry should be doing. It was just, it was more about this is what we think is going to work for, for NAPCO and for its shareholder base and for its customers. The next the next person may do the same, they may do something different. And I think we need to be comfortable that people across the industry have different views on all different things. Uh, but I guess the framework is trying to create that document where we can say, look, this broadly captures the whole industry. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. That's why we continue to have consultation over, over time with all the different stakeholders. And one thing I guess I learned from agriculture is there is a huge amount of stakeholders and there is quite a fragmented you know, view on, on many different areas. So I don't think, as I said, I'm not sure you'll ever get to the point where everyone agrees with everything, but I think if you listen to, to people and you, you consult as broadly as you can, then you, over time you develop a picture of, of how things should go. Well, I guess this is, you've got a really interesting viewpoint then because, you know, someone who hasn't sort of grown up or, or been heavily invested into the beef industry until relatively recently, you've just said your big you know, strengths are team building and communication and all that sort of thing. You've put together the framework. You can see the fragments. What is your advice now that you're, you've got a couple of steps back again to the Australian beef industry in becoming a little bit more cohesive in some of these big issues? Yeah, look, it's a, I mean, if, I, if you could answer that question, I think you'd... Oh, come on, uh, silver bullets, solve a lot of problems. silver bullets. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I think it, it, I probably did feel like there was, there's a lot of different groups and maybe there is a, 
maybe there is an opportunity to consolidate some of that and um, and have have a I suppose a group that that speaks on behalf of the entire industry. But then, if you look even geographically at the different types of industries within the beef industry, the different types of ways of of farming around the country, it's so different. You, know, you take a property in the Barclay Tableland and um, the Northern Territory and compare it to a somewhere down in Gippsland, and it, it's just it's very different. You know, mm. so uh, look, is there a way we can can have sort of a one view across the industry. I'm, I'm not sure there is. Uh, I, I think we should focus more on what we're doing well. You know, I think that's that's really important. And I know there was some criticism of the framework that perhaps we could focus a bit more on the positive stuff. And and look, I think that's that's pretty valid. But you, you need to walk the fine line between uh, you know what's the truth, and then what's marketing. You you've know? got to so, own your mistakes too. Like you're not going to improve anything until you realise there is a problem. No, that's right. And I think if you take the view that over time things will improve and we'll learn more than we, like we'll know more this year than we did last year, and we'll, we'll use that information and make decisions in the future, then I think you know you can't go too far wrong. But like I said, I I do feel the industry by and large has been really proactive around a lot of these things. Uh, you know, take pain relief for an example, and you know that's another issue that divides people. Some people are big advocates, other people want to see more evidence, and you know you're always going to have that kind of debate. But mm. uh, at the end of the day, you got to make a call to say, well, you, you know, it feels like this probably works and, and has an impact. Um, and it's up to the people doing it then to say, well, yeah, I'm going to take that view or no, I don't believe in the cost of that versus the benefit, et cetera. So I think all you can do is give people the information and then ultimately, as I mentioned, they'll, they'll make the decision that's best for their business. Okay, well, we're going to change tack a little bit because we, we um fascinating, but we, um, we'll, we'll leave that alone for the moment. You've now skipped over to the Queensland Treasury Corporation, which screams finance and numbers to me, Stephen, and, and again, yeah. a completely different path to your whole career to date. Yeah, that's right. I got an opportunity late last year to, to join the team here at QDC, Queensland Treasury Corporation, which I, I guess essentially is the, the funding, you know, the debt funding, uh, you know, organisation for the state government, uh, which includes government departments, government-owned corporations, and also regional councils. So it's a pretty big remit, and it's a really interesting business. I've, I've been here for a month now, so I'm, I'm involved in the local government team. Uh, so working with a lot of the regional councils around all, all sorts of different issues around uh, financial management, uh, you know, reporting, business improvement. Uh, obviously, the debt funding piece is, is part of that as well. So uh, you know, actually finding myself in some quite similar situations to 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 at Napco. I've already been out to to Longreach and Junda a few weeks ago. Gosh, Junda, um, that's um, that's that's right. <laughs> a long way from not from everywhere. <laughs> well, I didn't think I'd be going to Junda in my second week. That's for sure. No. But it was great to be back out there. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about Napco was the regional. Uh, element of it and and that's a tiny plane too that's not you know some nice big um (laughs) jet plane that's right yeah i'm used to them now thankfully but (laughs) how on earth do you fit in them i um (laughs) someone was telling me the other day they gave you a lift in the car for at another event and she was terrified that you wouldn't be able to actually fit in the front of her pajero so i'm imagining you folding yourself into one of these (laughs) tiny little planes 
yeah, the small planes have taken some getting used to. But as I said, I really do enjoy getting out to those areas and, and meeting the people, um, a lot of whom I, I, I've met previously in, in, in my NAPCO role. So, uh, look, hopefully we can continue to, to help the regional councils and there's, there's all sorts of stuff that we work together with them on. Uh, and it's a quite a rewarding role, uh, you know, just to, to try and help help these councils to be more sustainable financially. And, uh, you know, it's not just a financial issue. I think this whole, this is a, a whole big piece around what does regional Queensland look like into the future. And, you know, that comes down to uh, resilience around uh, disaster management. There's obviously the financial piece and then there's the people piece. So, you know, what is our message to people around regional Queensland and, and the benefits of living in, in all those regions? And that's something we need to continue to, to focus on. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to being involved in that. You retired from rugby and part of that was, was focusing on your very young family and, and your wife, Courtney. I feel like someone's going to, has just thrown me under a bus a little bit because I said, do ask about how he met Courtney. So I'm hoping that this is actually is a good story and they're not setting me up. <laughs> yeah, look, it, yeah, I think it's a good story. You know, I often say to people. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to ask her, but. I always say to people, I think it's the best thing that happened to me in my rugby career because we were over in South Africa playing a couple of test matches. Uh, we played in Durban the previous week. We played in Johannesburg the day we met. So uh, after the test, went back to the hotel and I remember one of my teammates, Nathan Sharp, said, well, you know, we need to try and stay awake tonight uh, because we need to get back onto Australian time, which is always an excuse to, to say, well, let's go out and have a few beers. We went to a little bar just near the hotel in Joburg in, in Santon, which is like a community in Johannesburg. And I just started talking to courts at the bar. I think I, I might have offered to buy her a drink. And, um, a gentlemanly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, look, it was a typical meet at a bar type story. We, we kept in touch. I think she wrote her number down on a piece of paper at the end of the night and oh you know, off we went back to flew back to Australia and a part of me thought, look, I'll probably never see see that girl again. And uh, But we kept in touch and back then it was Skype was the was the method of communication. So you know, there's a massive time difference between Australia and South Africa. So I was always waking up early or staying up late at night so we could talk and she was working for Investec, which is a South African bank uh, back, back in Durban. And eventually I said, oh, do you want to come out for a holiday uh, in, in in Brisbane, you know, so that's what happened. And then over the next 18 months, I was in South Africa for rugby a few times. We, we had another holiday in the UK and it came to the point where I said, well, you know, what do you think about moving to Australia? And, and I was in Canberra at the time. Um, and I said, look, Canberra's got a very similar climate to Durban, which is, was not true. Not at all. No, so she moved, I think, just before Anzac Day, which in Canberra is the, typically the time you turn on your heaters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so she came out from Durban and, and landed in Canberra. So that's where we lived for, for a number of years. Um, and then yeah, we had a fair bit of trouble getting our citizenship, getting her citizenship. It was really tricky because we hadn't lived together before. Uh, we had to prove all this stuff and, you know, there's there's a lot of issues around that with immigration. So, you know, cut a long story short, we here we are in Brisbane with three kids later and uh, very happy. And you know, as I said, I think it was of everything that I experienced in rugby, that's that's the greatest thing I, 
by say that I achieved in the game was meeting courts. And if hadn't been in South Africa on that day, it wouldn't have happened. So that's a it's fate. And what was her like? You said the the visa was tricky, but how did she find that? That's a fairly massive commitment to move countries. Yeah, well, look, I I'll forever be grateful for her. She just upended and left her family and friends for for a new life, basically. And uh, yeah, it was tough. I think she. She misses her her family. Her sisters are literally about to have a baby any day now, and she and can't no, go you there. Can't, you can't go even if you wanted to. No, so oh. I think she's finding that pretty stressful. Uh, which is, you know, there's as she said to me yesterday, there's there's plenty of people in the same boat. So, but little things like that, you know, she she misses, I suppose, having her mother around, and her dad's not with us anymore. He passed away before we met, so I never got to meet him. But uh, look, she she's. Yeah, she never she never complains about it. She gets on with it, and she's you know made a good life here. And we got three beautiful kids and plenty of friends. And Brisbane's a great place to live, you know. So uh, we're really happy. And you know, she's um, she still supports the Springboks. So and she. Yeah, did I was going to say this was my next question. So how does that go? Yeah. You got Irish parents. You played for the Wallabies, and your wife's a Springbok. So how how is that? What the, <laughs> the, the um, well, our kids are very very confused. Yeah. The Tri Nations so, must be incredibly confusing. That's right, exactly. So, you know, we did have a few Springbok jerseys turn up around the World Cup in 2019, which, as the tournament wore on, got worn more and more regularly. So, uh, you know, but look, I've got no issue with that. I, my parents are Irish, and I, I very much appreciate and am proud of my Irish background and always will be. And I want our kids to feel the same. You know, their, their mother's South African and you know, the, the World Cup in 2019, you, you know, like it did in 95 in South Africa, it united the nation. South Africa's had a tough time. It's it's had a lot of social unrest and political issues and I think things like Rugby World Cups and, and when, when they see their country uh, winning something on the world stage, it's such a powerful thing for their country. And, uh, you know, she was very emotional when that happened and, and uh, you know, I could see how patriotic, they are about their, their country and it was, you know, in a way, as you know, once Australia was eliminated, it was good to see them do well. Yeah, absolutely. I can appreciate that. And I guess now we're talking today because of Beef Australia and um, you've no doubt got a number of hats to wear at that particular event, but what is going to be your main sort of role at the um, Beef Beef 21? Yeah, look, I think I'm just working it all out at the moment. I think I'm coming up on the Thursday to, to be involved in the, the Young Leaders uh, Forum or the Young Leaders event, which is really exciting. And, you know, I think the one thing I learned in in my time in the beef industry is, is that we need to really continue to promote the next generation of both operators on station and also leaders in the industry. And, and that's something that the industry has been proactive about, which is great. Uh, there's various opportunities for young young leaders through different scholarships, etc., to be involved in. So that's great. Uh, so we'll be involved in that. And then the Classic Wallabies are also doing some stuff up there during the week. And I think there's a lunch on the Friday and maybe even a game. Yes, yes, I know about this game. My husband has uh, put his hand up for this game. Um, so go go softly, won't you? <laughs> well, it's funny. I've I've played in about three or four games since I retired for the Classic Wallabies, and it's always us that has to say to the other team, "Go easy." 
So there's never any. You don't have to ask us twice to go easy in a game like that. Uh, no, I think you'll all be suffering along together. I heard there's plenty of breaks, so you can um, all puff yeah, it out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, and that's for us more than anyone, I think. Um, you know, I think all it, all it takes is one of the someone to get hit at a ruck or someone to go a bit hard, and then all the uh, all the it all comes flooding back pretty quickly. And I remember we played in, uh, I think it was Orange one time, and yeah, it ended up getting quite serious, which I was pretty keen to stay out of. So um, hopefully it's a bit of fun. I think it's a great idea, uh, and I'm looking forward to being involved in it. Have you found any, like, hidden talent in the regions? Well, obviously I grew up in Rocky, so my heroes were the Rocky team, right, like the players from that team. So as a kid, they're the people I looked up to and... You know, people like Scotty Barton, who grew up there, he, he he actually played for Rocky when we played up there a couple of years ago. So, mm. no, it's good to see rugby, even though it's probably not as strong as it once was. It's still it's still alive in Rocky and uh, and hopefully uh, even Mount Morgan, I think, still has a team, which is really good to see. Well, so maybe I'm just going to be a little bit self-indulgent with this, um, as a, with rugby and country rugby, because it's something that certainly is very close to my heart. Do you think there is scope to bring to support country rugby more and you know there is there is so much potential in some of these regions um do you think that you know australian rugby does enough to to get out to the regions and to support some of this talent uh no i don't i don't think we do enough and and look i've been pretty vocal about that and i think there's a lot more we can do in the regions i think uh the, the top end of the game's probably taken up more resources than than it should have over the last period of time and, and that's not anyone's fault it's you know just the way it's worked out uh, through professionalism etc but there's no doubt that that has created a a bit of a uh, vacuum in regional Queensland um, yeah because I, I think regional Queensland regional New South Wales should be rugby strongholds you know that if you look back through history the amount of wallabies that have come from all those places it's a long long list and some of the great players we've ever had have come from the bush um, and we don't want to lose that you know we need to keep providing opportunities for kids to play rugby uh you know, and I know a lot of people say to me, well, yeah, they all go to Brisbane boarding schools and end up playing in Brisbane. Well, that's right, but they need to start playing somewhere. And there also needs to be teams for the people that don't go to Brisbane, the people who stay and work on properties, who work as a mechanic in town. They need to be able to go and play rugby on the weekend. And that is what community is all about. Mm. It is rugby clubs are the heart of the community. You go to New Zealand and you'll see that. That's probably the best example. Oh, it's crazy. The, it's wonderful to see over there. Rugby club is yep. the centre of the community. That's where everyone goes on a Saturday afternoon. People go and have a beer. They, they get a burger. They talk to their mate. They go on the jumping castle, whatever you want to do. They, they sit around the fireplace and tell stories. Because it's so family orientated. Like our rugby club, it's just... It's for everyone. It's not just for, you know, the husbands, the boys that's to go right. and have a beer at. Everybody is involved. Exactly. That's right. And, and, and these sort of clubs run on volunteers. You know, that, that's how it works. And uh, if we don't provide that platform, and then I think we're, we're really missing something. And if you look at the impact of rugby clubs on improving things like mental health, you know, you look at the, the mental health in regional Australia is, is an issue that you're hearing more and more about. Well, you know, some of that is a cause of our lack of connection as a community and things like rugby clubs provide that environment. So I think there's a, there's a lot to do there and look, I don't have all the answers to it, but 
I certainly think it takes people like yourselves driving driving the club at Charters Towers, you know, it takes people in long reach to do the same and you know, and I know the Darling Downs, I think do a pretty good job of rugby still quite vibrant in, in the Darling Downs, but certainly through the Central West and you know, areas that were previously strong. I was Rockhampton's another example. I think there's a there's a lot we can do to, to improve it. And that takes an allocation of resources from the top end of the game. You can't all do it on your own. It needs to be things like development offices and uh, you know, that sort of stuff is really important to, to provide the tools to, to grow the game. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so, it's so refreshing to hear you say that. Now, I've taken up so much of your time. I only have one quick question left, and it's something that I've asked everybody um, when they've come on this podcast. Um, what's the coiled sausage from South African? Bora Bors. Oh, thank you. So what is your – I need to ask you what your favourite cut of meat is. Favourite cut of meat, and do you cook it, or is, is quartz the cook? No, I don't think quartz knows how to turn on the barbecue. So, <laughs> um... <laughs> so you're the cook. That's right, I'm the yeah, cook. Right. In South Africa, people use those coals pretty yeah. much for everything. So that's how they usually do. Uh, obviously, the braai, it's called, is a right, big yeah, part of South yeah. African culture. Yeah, you, you have a braai. So, you know, barbecuing is a big part of our family and always will be, I hope. So, mm. look, my favourite cut of meat, I actually like rump. You know, a good rump, I think, is hard to beat. Yep, it is. Um, it's tasty. So that... That's right. Yeah, I've uh, you know you can get various qualities, but I think you know, a good rump is is really good. So, Perfect. so that that would be my favourite. Well, Stephen Moore, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. We really look forward to seeing you at Beef Twenty One. No worries, Jane. Thanks a lot. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.